0: There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me, as always, is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks helping us move from awareness to action. Today is Mr. Thomas Judge, the executive director of the Life Flight Foundation. Welcome, Tom.
1: Well, welcome, thanks you guys as well.
0: And Tom, I see that uh, that Maine is the second most rural state in terms of population in the United States. And effectively it's, it's the foundation and Life Flight's job to bring life-saving equipment and critical care to emergency scenes all across that state so that is no small feat
1: um, well it's a big job so we're we're a small private nonprofit charity we're kind of organized a bit differently than most uh, air medicine is in the United States we're probably more resemble Australia some places in Canada New Zealand so maybe some places in Europe um, in our approach to to pieces but you're right Maine is a a big place we have a uh very dispersed population in little hamlets so we don't maybe have as much white space as you'd have in the big western states but we have a dispersed population and also the oldest population in america uh spread into 502 uh you know small cities little towns hamlets unorganized townships uh 300 some islands with seasonal year on or year round population. So it's a, it's a dispersed area and we operate in outside of Alaska, the most complex aviation uh, environment in the, in the country. So extremes of temperature, the Labrador currents, mountains, forests, uh, sort of the, the like. So making sure that at the time of need and at the point of need, we can get high-end, uh, time-critical medical services to patients, whether they're in a small community hospital on the side of the road on an island, in the North Main Woods on top of a mountain uh, is a task that we undertake every day. So every age from neonates to uh, premature infants to our oldest citizens, every kind of disease process, uh, you know, very complex medicine, Um, Delivered uh, on the mobile basis.
0: Wow, incredible! So, how how often are your services deployed?
1: Well, so we in 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 the given space of a year, and I think it's important that that we're part of the fabric of an emergency care system. And I've had the, the good fortune to literally be able to work all over the world. And if you go around the world, I think there's like over 119. Separate, distinct three-digit numbers. So our nine-one-one might be nine-nine-nine in the in the UK or one-one-two in Europe, but across the world, there's this incredible fabric of of emergency care. Um, some very highly trained, you know, in hospitals, trauma surgeons, doctors, um, and and some very you know modestly trained first responders. And that's a it's a fabric. I think it's. We, we seldom stop to think about what this is, and it's important for people to think about it. And what I characterize it is, is the most profound promise in the history of humankind. And it's quite simple, but profound. If you call us, we will come. And 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. In a place like Maine, many of those people are volunteers. They leave a job. They climb out of bed. They leave their dinner table. They leave their kids, their wife, their husband, however, and they go to take care of a neighbor. And and, and literally that happens around the world. It's an incredible fraternity in rescue medicine, resuscitation medicine, emergency medicine, fire rescue. Uh, and we don't, all of us. Depend on that. You know, we depend if we need some help, someone's going to come, but we don't really ever think about what it takes to actually get them there. So we spend a great deal of time thinking about how we're going to deliver those services to the point of need, the right service at the time of need, uh, to get someone to the place that they, you know, is going to finally sort their issue out. And during the time, you know, provide advanced resuscitation, management, et cetera, while we're in motion. So that's a, it's a big task. Um, We all depend on it. There's, so in the state of Maine, there's 260,000 calls a year to uh, summon 911, summon first responders, uh, the emergency care system. We see about 3,000 of those patients, and we see the 3,000 sickest of those patients whether it's injury or disease um the patients who have incredibly complex generally time sensitive medical you know uh, problems that that need sorting out so we're on the move a lot every you know they're spread out across the geography um to, to uh get get to those patients when they need us
0: that is profound work and certainly thank you for that um how did you, if, if if you would, take us through your career path and how you found yourself in the position you're in?
1: Well, I would say it's eclectic, uh, as <laughs> is often the case. This was not a plan. So, when I was uh, in college, I was uh, wanted to work with young kids, and I was working in a, a residential program for troubled youth. And you know, I'm I'm 19 or 20, and and. uh because I'd had some background in the woods, they' were like, "Well, you can be an environmental trip specialist." So that meant getting these these troubled youth out into the woods. We were recreating some trail in New Hampshire. and uh, we'd put the kids to bed one night and uh, awoke to a, a sort of a fight with the kids, which was not uncommon, and had one of the kids get stabbed with a little you know a little pocket knife. The kids have, and uh, had had you know three hours first day training and was like in the middle of the woods, eight miles up a stream. Um, and here's a kid with a knife sticking in him, and uh, I was like smart enough to not pull it out. Um, <laughs> uh, we sorted the kids. I you know taped it up when we uh, pile I piled this kid on my back. the other counselors you know sorted the rest of the kids out. I hiked you know some miles down a stream to a state park you know, pulled out my two dimes that we were, you know, given this as long before cell phones and, uh, you know, found a pay phone in the state park, you know, and summoned help. Now, as it turned out, the, the kid ended up doing fine. It was, it was really superficial, but I, in that situation was, I was not competent to, you know, I, I and I looked at that and said, you know, people, the, the the camp I was working for, you know, these kids, a lot of kids were in adjudication, so it might not have been their parents, but people trusted me to know what to do, to to really be able to take care of this kid, and we were better lucky than good that night, um, and the, the kid was fine and, and, and did fine, and, and there was no problem, but I was like, that's, that's irresponsible on my part. So I was like, let's learn some more of this emergency medicine stuff. If I'm going to work with kids in the outdoors. So when I finished school, moved and started working in Maine when I was in school and, and moved to this little town. And, you know, I knew the, didn't know really anybody, but knew the lo- one of the local plumbers. And uh, he was in the fire to put rescue and said, well, you know, some of this stuff, you ought to join the fire rescue. So, Joined that in the volunteer rescue and i've done that for 40 some years uh but then sort of ran into things you know we the education system for the emergency providers isn't what it needs to be and you know you you find problems and you can kind of work by them or you can say how can this be better and i think i'm drawn to problems and systems and how to make systems better so but the road to here was a long one i i think my fifth career so i had put myself through college being a carpenter so i went back to being a carpenter at one point and stopped teaching regularly and ended up owning a design build company spent some years on the road as a musician uh was then had gone by then i'd gone to paramedic school was working in a big service plus running the construction company back and forth ended up in ireland Came back, was running that and and quite literally one of our building customers over dinner one night said, look, you know, we love you as a builder, but the world can't afford for you to build any more houses and I want you to do this. And I ended up in the UK as a fellow uh, working uh, in a British government fellowship, but I was working in the NHS and uh, spent a year in different systems in Scotland and that year opened up the Commonwealth. And when I came back, I'd given all my jobs away, sold the company to the guys. They were, you know, the healthcare system said, we need a helicopter system in Maine. We don't have one. There's, we're the only ones in the country without a helicopter systems. So build it. <laughs> and having been on the regulatory board, I, I didn't know anything about helicopter systems. I knew a fair bit about emergency care systems. And uh, so we, uh, got some smart people to work with us and build a system
0: here in Maine. Well, that's an awesome so, st- a Awesome activity. story about uh, personal responsibility and, and seeing things that needed to be improved. And, and when, when you said NHS, is that a national health system?
1: The National Health Service. So oh, I okay. was posted at a, a big research unit that did emergency care research at the University of Sheffield and uh but then you know we actually lived in scotland and so i had a i had an office with the scottish national ambulance service and then got involved with the college of surgeons there and the faculty of pre-hospital care and ended up down working for the king's fund in london so and then of course we forget that you know we have the united nations but we forget the power of the commonwealth so having sort of entered into their lives they invited me into things, so ended up in South Africa, and ended up in sort of lots of places since then as a result of that fellowship. Wow, Tom, can you tell us uh, just to recap? How long have you been with Lifelight Foundation? So, so we started Lifelight in 1998. Um, so, uh, and then we so there's there's actually two nonprofits. Um, there's a operating company nonprofit that that runs the helicopters and provides medical care. And then there's a charitable foundation that supports that that work so i was the originator the you know the first director for lifelight and then in 2003 we set up this separate foundation to bring all the rest of the stakeholders across the state so that we could really make sure that that you know we're the bridge across maine so we work across all the competing healthcare systems, work across with every EMS agency, every public safety agency. So we work in every community and we needed to make certain that there was a way to bring those community voices to the table, um, even if they weren't in the kind of operating company board. So um, so Life Flight of Maine since 1998, Life Flight Foundation since 2003. And I'm the executive director of both. And you um, gave us a great rundown of your, as you've said, eclectic uh, background and career history. But why do you feel like this is your current passion? Why have you stuck with it for close to 20 years? Um, well, it, I, it, uh, <laughs> it's, it's really responding to a need. And I, I work with some incredibly gifted and talented Um, people, some, you know, brilliant physicians, some brilliant clinicians, some, you know, aviation people. And we set out with this huge puzzle of how do we how do we do this? There isn't really enough money. There isn't all the resources we need. And we had to build it from scratch. And we keep uncovering um, needs. So when we're the healthcare system is changing rapidly around us. Um, and the, as a result, we haven't sorted out the problem, you know, that we've, we do really well. We sort out problems every day, but the larger problem is, is remains a challenge. And I would, I would characterize it this way. So Robert Maxwell was a sort of brilliant thinker. He actually came from the US, but ended up in the UK And really did some pioneering work back in the late 80s and 90s. And that's, of course, where I ran into his work on how do we think about healthcare and how do we know a healthcare system is achieving the results that we set out to achieve. And I would say, by nature, I'm kind of a market. I've been, you know, I still own a little store. I, I, you know, I don't get exercised about for-profit or not-for-profit, but I do believe that people should not live in fear of healthcare and that we could get to a better system in the United States broadly. What we've been given at LifeLight is the charge and the ability to create some little models of what this might look like. And if we've broadened this out. So, What Maxwell said is there ought to be six tests and we put a seventh test. So the first test is, is care accessible? Can people actually get to care? Can they, can they get the care they need? The second test is, is it equitable? Are you going to treat everybody the same? That's a real challenge in the United States. Those two are probably our biggest challenges in healthcare, especially in in our rural our underserved or our poor communities. The next test is, you know, are you effective? When you, when you actually set out to do something, um, does it actually get done? Is it, you know, is it measurably? Uh, is quality measurable? Do you get the right results on a predictable basis? Is it effective? The next test is, is it efficient? That we we don't have anywhere in the world enough money on healthcare. It's a healthcare is a sort of a bottomless bucket that we can pour resources into, and we can never fill the bucket. So we have to design systems that are incredibly economically efficient and at the same time high quality and at the same time treat everybody. The next test, is it really appropriate? And we do a lot of things well in the United States in medicine, but we do many things that are maybe not as appropriate as they need to be for care. So is the care appropriate to need? Um, And the sixth test that he put in is that are you responsive to change? And that's a that's a very big challenge in medicine. We know that from lots of research, that from the evidence of a change in practice, that, that it takes almost 17 years for that evidence to become routine practice across the system. You know, and so in resuscitation medicine, there's many things that we were trained to do, you know, 20 years ago in cardiac care and now you'd say, if you well, you give that medication cocktail, you're actually going to kill the patient. And it's like, well, no, we are trying to save their lives. And that was the best evidence that we had. But how does that change over time? So are we responsive to change? And then the, the seventh test that we apply is, is this safe? Is the system safe? And we define safety as being, is this reliable? And is it trustworthy? Is it going to be the same every time that we're, we're reliable If you call us, we'll find a way to help your problem. We may not be able to do it in option A, we might have to do option B or option C, option D, but we'll find a way, we'll make it reliable. And back to my, you know, talking about the thing of getting trusted with people's lives. In the emergency care system, we have this unique practice, um, this incredible intimacy. If the police come to your house, they need a warrant to be in, you know, or, or for you to invite them in. The fire department can't come into your house unless there's a fire. But emergency care providers walk into the people's most vulnerable into moments, intimate moments all the time. And this, this gift of intimacy is unique in, in emergency medicine. When something bad happens, we give our loved one, we give ourselves, we give our loved one into the hands of strangers. And our expectation is that those strangers will do everything in their power to get it right um, and to to do it right, so that it's gentle, it's compassionate, it's, it's the highest clinical care, and it's going to be safe. And so trust in, in our system, trust is an incredibly big piece, and we look around our our you know our lives and we look at the discourse in washington and the discourse in state capitals and the 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 media and and we lose trust in healthcare. it's like is is this going to be okay and no one should live in that kind of fear so what we're trying to do on our own little way is create that model that is hopefully transferable and translatable and that people can learn from and say, we can think about this a different way within the boundaries of the healthcare system that we have today. And, you know, I don't, I have no magic wand. I have no sheet of white paper. I have to work in the reality of today, but we can gently push this forward and gently push these Maxwell ideas forward um, over time and hopefully begin to, to move the, move the needle.
0: Well, it all certainly makes sense to me. And you are clearly a a wonderful and um, advocate for, um, for everything you've been talking about and, and for what I would have to agree that the direction healthcare should be moving in. How did you come across Maxwell?
1: Well, so when I was in the NHS, um, one of the a really gifted leader that I had known, I'd done some work in, in Northern Ireland and Belfast, and uh, a, a really gifted leader, Alan Murray there, had turned me on to, to Maxwell's work, and I started following it. And, you know, and it's interesting. I mean, Don Berwick, who, you know, the pediatrician who started the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and is, a, is you know, in all of that work, he was a disciple of Maxwell. <laughs> he had found Maxwell 30 years ago. And and uh, so, there. It's, you know, this is not... Uh, unique and certainly, you know, in the UK, they, they, you know, they, they look at this, this, this work all the time, you know, and and we have to be rigorous, you know. So when we set up our balanced scorecards, when we set up our, you know, performance indicators, when we set up our budgets, when we set up our our strategic plans, we use the Maxwell criteria. And how are we going to measure? Did we actually make care? more accessible? Did we make it more equitable? Are we making it more economically efficient? Are we, you know, operating as lean as we possibly can at the highest level level of effectiveness and quality? Are we making it safe? Are we changing as we need to change? Um, and are we really drilling in to make sure that at the point of need, we're delivering what is needed, you know, the appropriateness of that. So we we spend a lot of time thinking about that and and building culture you know that 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 in the long term in organizations and we certainly know this in safety that of all the safety management systems and all the technology and all the systems work what really sustains and brings those levels of of unfortunate events um to play is the culture it's the behaviors of this is the way we do it around here. And it's, it's, it's a tough, it's very tough. It's tough on our people, um, but we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what, what the standard, and we sort of define it, uh, you know, I, it, that if this was your loved one, what is good enough? You know, and if you're not as gentle, and if you're not as compassionate, and if you're not as skilled, um, if you don't deliver the best care, And why, if that was your loved one, why can't it be as, it's like this for every person, as much as it is for the person you love most in your life. So that, those parts of the standards of how we think about those things, we think about a lot. We work on those a lot.
0: Excellent. I was certainly—I I, I was curious when we started our conversation that you referenced that that the system in in Maine is similar to, I think you mentioned Australia and just just other parts of the of the country, and now it's certainly—or the world rather—and now it comes full circle. Um, I certainly understand that it sounds like you've taken really best practices from as many different places as possible and put those practices to work in Maine. So, which certainly makes sense.
1: Right. We believe the people in Bain deserve the best.
0: Yes, I love it. So, <clears throat> well, I, I'm curious, and something we ask everybody is: um, what are the three biggest things that you've learned over the past three years?
1: Wow. So we're we're in the middle of a lot of work. So one is that that the that the systems are under so much strain that that we're really looking at transformation efforts. So we're involved in what we call next gen. So in aviation, there's next gen. We're moving the air traffic system from ground radars to satellites. There's piles and piles of changes with that. The airspace is filling up with unmanned aircraft and manned aircraft and how do we do that? So there's a whole piece of next gen of technology reliability, integrating uh, all of those pieces. There's a a very big piece of next-gen medicine. So as an example, when I trained in medicine, if you had a stroke, you had a stroke. We treated you gently, we gave you a little oxygen, and three days later, your doctor told you what the rest of your life was gonna look like. Now, if we can rapidly intervene, identify what's going wrong, get someone to a neuro interventionist they can pretty much walk out of the hospital the next day with no deficits and so that's a the how do we do that especially in a rural area you know the Norwegians really think about this a lot and they're how do we deliver contemporary stroke care so we're focused a lot of thinking about how medicine where is that going to be well to do that we have to transform our workforce so we've Dropped the age of our workforce probably by about 15 years, um, which we all need to do, but that's really hard. So, I would say the three big things that we learn all the time is that culture is tough. Um, building culture is hard work that you have to do literally every day, and some days we do it really well, and some days we don't do it as well as we need to. So, the embrace you know, I, I would say that the that the need is growing faster than we can. There's going to be nine billion of us. Right. We have to figure out how we're going to feed people. We're going to have to figure out how we're going to technology. What, where can we apply technology? Um, so, I'd say that the learning pieces that we're doing are focused on those. These sort of foundations are people, the workforce, transforming the workforce, transforming the technology of both communications and transportation and the technologies of medicine to deliver these very specific uh, pieces that we uniquely bring across the rural landscape. And I would say that the three lessons are it's hard, (laughs) it gets harder, and it's gonna be hard for a long time. And, and, And that's, you know, but we have to at the same time we have to embrace it I know I was talking to one of our really brilliant you know big healthcare system leaders and and she was saying that you know she wakes up in the morning that you know she feels like she's bet the farm of the healthcare system on on all of the all of the new changes and payment strategies and all of these and she lays awake at night you know and 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 I was like I lay awake at night too I mean I my job is I get paid to worry but the other piece that the other side of that is we've been given a great gift in that the need for change is finally bigger than the resistance to change. (laughs) Um, not that that happens easy, but we're, we're, we're on there. So the next 10, and we're looking out, you know, 10 and 15, 20 years. Um, I think that we, we have some brilliant times, brilliant opportunities ahead of us and, If we can pull it off, um, which we certainly aim to do, um, that'll be a good thing for everybody.
0: I love it. And finally, Tom, knowing that the whole world would hear it, what plea would you make?
1: Uh, The the whole world is do everything you can in every moment of your life to build trust. Wow. It's the most precious resource, that we have and it's the hardest to achieve and it's the easiest to lose so work really hard in everything you do to build trust
0: that is great yes indeed excellent well centauri what have we forgotten to talk about nothing tom thanks for
1: sharing all that i love the the final nugget of do everything you can to build trust it was great hearing your story and your journey and thank you for being on
0: well, thank you for having us, and you're certainly always
1: welcome to come to Maine.
0: I love it, and Tom, where where can people learn more about you and the foundation?
1: So, if you go to, uh, uh, we're on Facebook and Instagram, but the, the most detailed information is on our website, uh, www.lifeflightmaine with an all one word, dot org.
0: Excellent. Before I let you go, what what kind of musician were you, Tom? Uh, I'm a fiddle player. Both nice. my wife and I are fiddle players. Okay. So
1: Irish, Irish, have an Irish heritage. So awesome. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you again, sir. Um, and <clears throat> for all you people listening, we we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Please do subscribe to the show and uh, take a minute and share it with somebody that you think would also enjoy this excellent conversation. Um, Thanks again, Tom. Thank you both. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real.